Glenn Barth. I'm the president of Good Cities. And uh, the way that our call got started was that uh, in June, June 14th through 16th, I was with a few of our friends who are on the call today, Scott Myers and his team, and uh, we were at the Weatherhead School of Management where um, we had the fourth global forum of business as an agent of uh, world benefit. And uh, it was a very interesting meeting in which we heard a lot of great approaches. And one of the most interesting ones that we had during the time there um, was, uh, was when we heard from uh, our guest today. And I'll tell you just a little bit about that in a moment. But we learned a lot uh, during that time together. And we thought to ourselves uh, at Good Cities that it would be critically important for us to begin to lift up what we believe are some of the best examples of ways that businesses are providing uh, community benefit. As we think about good cities, we know that the area of commerce provides a great deal of benefit uh, to uh, customers, to employees, but also to the communities where those businesses exist. And so uh, we made it our point to begin to look for businesses that we believe are, are doing a, a great job with this and uh, we're even finding businesses that are directly addressing social, uh, critical social issues uh, by the work that they're doing, and they're putting people full-time to it. And uh, so that's been an exciting development as we're getting to know some of the folks. We're sharing uh, some of the best practices we're hearing about out there uh, on this call that we do on the third Thursday of each month. And uh, next month we're going to have with us Pablo Guevara from Epic Pie in Cleveland, Ohio, who will be talking about purposeful investing and how people can meet their life's mission by investing in the right places, places that, uh, in fact, are carrying out the mission that, uh, that they have. And I'm not just talking about nonprofits. I'm talking about investing in for-profit companies that are doing good in their community. So... Um, Tomorrow, we have a very interesting meeting taking place at S.D. Myers, uh, where, which is also the home of Good Place Holdings, and uh, we'll be having a meeting there that, that uh, is our first businesses doing good gathering. We'll have about 16 folks at, at this first uh, meeting. It's, a, it's not a large meeting, but I think it's just the tip of the iceberg, and some of you who have been early adapters and innovators in this movement are going to be coming out to uh, Akron, Ohio, to meet one another and uh, and begin to uh, figure out how, how do we how do we spread the word that this is going on? We believe in every city of our country, and uh, and so uh, we'll share some of the best practice there that we know about that that's going on in terms of business being an agent of community benefit. Um, today on on this version of uh, businesses doing good, we have the pleasure of having uh, Jonathan Halperin from Grayston Bakery with us, and, uh, and Jonathan uh, was at that meeting in, Acre I mean, in Cleveland at uh, the Weatherhead School of Management that I, that I mentioned earlier in the call, and he made one of the most compelling presentations that we heard during our time together, and from that, from the moment he made his presentation, I think uh, our group with Scott Myers and, uh, and his team uh, made it a point to spend time with, uh, with Jonathan because uh, we loved the concept that he promoted, which was, calling, which was called open hiring. And, 
and it still is called that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so so Jonathan uh, works with Grayston Bakery, and and he's here today to share with us some of the insights that they've learned during the many years of using this process at Grayston Bakery, and he'll tell us a little bit about how it's spreading around the country. So, Jonathan, welcome to the call, and uh, again, I'm just going to jump right into it. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the story about how the owners of Grayston Bakery decided on uh, the open hiring approach to employment at the bakery. Sure, sure. Happy to happy to be part of the group, Glenn. So I'll give you a little bit of history, um, and then happy to answer other questions too. Um, so there's a there's a corporate form uh, part of that question that I'll, that I'll get to too. But so Grayson Bakery uh, and Social Enterprise just celebrated its 35th anniversary. Our founder, uh, Bernie Glassman, was a, uh, a Jewish engineer born in Brooklyn, New York, who. Uh, was looking for ways to help people who are in the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, and he began a, a spiritual Buddhist practice. And from that, uh, the notion of non-judgment as a basis for hiring anyone uh, was the concept that has now evolved into what we call open hiring. So uh, Bernie began uh, with that notion, and what we now have uh, at Grayson is uh, a, a world-class commercial bakery producing 35,000 pounds of brownies every day for Ben and & Jerry's, and everyone who works on the production floor at the bakery, which runs 24-7, has been hired without being interviewed, without having any background checks done, without really even applying. Um, which requires just another a second of explanation. So if you want a job at the Grayston Bakery, you put your name on a list, you put your cell phone on the list. When a job becomes available and you're the next person on the list, you get a call. If you answer the call, you come in at the appointed time, you join an apprenticeship program, you're hired. You get paid for that first day of work, and you have a job. There are no questions asked. So that is open hiring born out of the, the Buddhist principle of non-judgment. Um, the, the, if, it's, if it's interesting to people, I can spend a minute on the, the, the ownership form because uh, we're a benefit corp, uh, New York State's first registered benefit corporation. The mission is open hiring. Um, and the ownership of the commercial bakery is held by a nonprofit foundation. Hmm. I can go more into any of those details and share more, but that, that gives a, a first slice, as it were, of, uh, yeah. of what we do. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, and, and as we prepared for this call, I, I shared, Jonathan asked me, well, um, Glenn, you're, you're an ordained minister, and um, I'm interested in, in uh, how you're going to approach this, because uh, it, it, this came from a Buddhist uh, position of, of uh, non-judgmental uh, practices in hiring uh, really uh, coming from that notion of not judging. And uh, I told Jonathan, I said, well, we're really comfortable with that because we serve a, a, a Jewish rabbi who taught, taught us not to judge as well. And, uh, and what we're always looking for at Good Cities are the best practices out there, and we believe open hiring is one of those. And, uh, and to us, we're thrilled that you're doing it. At, uh, in Yonkers at Grayston Bakery. 
So uh, tell us why why does open why does this open hiring approach uh, matter in our world today? Um, yeah, there's 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 a whole number of of reasons. So um, so we think that creating opportunities for people who want to have a job such that they can experience the dignity of work is transformational. And, mm. and we know from our experience that it's transformational, or it can be, not, not in every circumstance, but that it can be transformational for a single person, for that person and their family, for that person in their community, and for the organization that they join. Um, mm. Whether it's, a, you know, in our case, obviously a, a for-profit business venture. It changes and transforms each of those layers. Um, so, you know, one aspect of that then, Glenn, is that, you know, a person that is not judged on their past, but is held accountable and does need to be responsible for their present work. I mean, it's a job that we offer people, not a program, right? So you have to show up. You have to do the work. You know, you can't drop the flour on the floor. You have to drop it into the mixing bowl to make the brownies, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. We're running a business. Um, but, but the power of open hiring to break the cycles of recidivism, the power of open hiring to break the cycle of poverty, the power of open hiring um, to break a cycle of homelessness, um, it, it, saves, it saves us money as a company. It saves the, the government money in social services and security and the criminal justice system, and it transforms lives and communities. So we think of it not the only thing, certainly. There's lots of other good things going on. But as one really important element, that if you transform the HR practice in a business to incorporate open hiring into that, that it has a huge ripple effect out across from person to society at large. You've got a great slogan at uh, the bakery. Tell, tell us yeah. what the slogan is about open hiring. Yeah. Um, we don't hire people to bake brownies. We bake brownies to hire people. And that was coined a long time ago, um, and it still really motivates uh, the entire organization because it is about the people um, and about providing a, an opportunity for them to succeed while participating in the making of, in our case, it happens to be brownies. It's now brownies and cookies, but it, it could be anything. Um, and and we've, you know, we do presentations all the time with folks who are not in the, in the food processing uh, sector, but we think open hiring is an unlock for a lot of different companies that are either looking to retain Either looking to deal with labor shortages, spot labor shortages, um, and who are not have, who have traditionally excluded uh, folks that have are returning citizens. Uh, we know that it helps attract millennial talent because a business that has a purpose, as I, as I think most of the folks on this call would certainly understand, you know, a business with purpose has a competitive advantage. Um, certainly, the millennial uh, group wants to work and make money, and also have a sense of contributing. Uh, so there's a, there's a host of, of business advantages as well as societal benefits. So it is, it is right in that sweet spot of, you know, business doing good. Well, that, that's, that's outstanding. Tell us a story or two about 
a success story for an employee and for the bakery? Um, sure. So a um, couple. So so we are. Uh, because we're running 24/7 now, six days a week, we're needing to expand. So from from a little a little bakery in Yonkers, um, you know, and now making 35,000 pounds of brownie a day, we're expanding. Uh, so a business successor is expanding uh, and putting up a plant in the Netherlands, uh, in part to meet uh, European demand from Ben and Jerry's, but also to free up capacity domestically to meet the demand from other uh, customers and, and clients. So at a business level, that's a pretty uh, significant step, and and we are quite proud that you know with a population that came to the bakery initially without any training, without any necessarily uh, you know set of skills, having worked in other food processing facilities, and without interviewing any of them, you know we meet the Unilever standards for product safety, for productivity, for for food processing, all of those things, and that's a that's a pretty high bar. It's a pretty pretty serious set of standards. Mm-hmm. Um, on a personal level, you know, there, there's lots of stories, and, and we had a at our 35th anniversary gala, uh, you know, last week, we, we had, you know, a room silenced by a, uh, one of our female bakers who was, you know, on the edge of tears telling her story. Um, so there's lots of stories. Um, you know, the one that I probably know best, but can absolutely not do justice to verbally, uh, but it, but is a gentleman named Dion Drew who. Uh, has a remarkable story that he recounts and has 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 done so publicly uh, many times. But you know, having sold drugs, dealt drugs, used drugs, been arrested twice, sent as he puts it upstate uh, in New York, uh, and has you know, seven, probably pushing eight now, years ago, talked about that he was you know about to give up, couldn't find a job, you know, didn't know what to do, was at wit's end, and was about to go back to selling drugs on the street. Um, he got a call because he had put his name on the list, and he went and changed his life that day. Wow! Uh, wow! And he now is a, he's now the supervisor of training at the bakery. Wow! Now, talk to us about that because training is is critical. You've got to help people who uh, get a job there really become a part of the culture there. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you uh, strengthen that retention rate once somebody yes. decides that they're going to come to work there. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. It's a really important aspect. I, I guess I would say that there's two rings of sort of training and support, uh, maybe, maybe three actually. So right, the, the first is a formal apprenticeship program that everybody goes through. Uh, it can take anywhere from six to nine months depending upon you know, people's you know, c- capacities and, and their ability to absorb the material. Um, and we're also, uh, you know, we're a union shop as well. So before you join the union, you go through this apprenticeship program, and then when you join the union, you get all the, you know, all the benefits that you get from any, any union situation. Um, uh, so that training, um, you know, is very, um, it's very precise. It's very practical. It's about, but and it also covers not just how to make brownies. It comes. It also covers how to work, how to prepare for work. Um, the sort of protocols for you know keeping your locker, for getting ready, for putting on the hairnets, for you know putting on the gloves, all of those different things. So that's kind of I would say ring one. Um, ring two is another layer. We don't call it training, but it is. It's sort of life training. We call it path making. Um, so we have a partnership with a, a community service organization, and we have a caseworker on site at the bakery, such that when folks have challenges or questions or problems, 
they have a resource they can go to. I mean, so you know, if you're a re- if you're a returning citizen, you got questions right off the bat. Like, I guess you got paid. How do I open a bank account? Can I open a bank account? Or you were living on the streets and you're homeless. You don't have an actual address that has, that you've been at for any more than a couple of days. So there's a lot of challenges that can arise. Mm. And we make the point that we have that caseworker on on site because the challenges that are faced by the population we employ through open hiring are of a particular type, but they're of a fundamental category that we all face, right? Everybody has challenges. Everybody needs, at, at times, financial advice. Everybody, at times, needs social advice, familial advice, et cetera. Um, our population, we know, has particularly, you know, has, has a special set of needs there. But they're not unique in a certain sense. They're just human. Um, so that's the second layer. The third uh, ring, if you will, is um, it ties into pathmaking, which is a set of community programs that are open not just to the bakers, but also to the community at large. And those vary from, from time to time. And we think as we work with other companies, they also will vary from place to place. But for us now, it includes some subsidized housing. It includes a childhood early learning center. It includes a set of community gardens uh, that produce produce as well as provide a kind of a safe place and a, and a quiet place for an urban environment, uh, and workforce development. And the idea there, to put it really simply in the interest of time here, is that if you want folks to do really well, not just if you want folks to get a job, that's open hiring. If you want to make it possible for folks to succeed on the job, they have to know the same way all of us do, that their kids are safe, that they've got a place to live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's, again, different by virtue of the population, but it, again, is meeting pretty fundamental human needs at the intersection of doing good and making money. That's, that's beautiful. I, I, I love the rings of support that you're offering to each employee. What kind of success rate, then, are you having with your retention of employees? Uh, it's a it's an it's an interesting question. The, the fundamental answer is really good. The detail is this, right? So given our population, we have a drop off rate around forty five percent at about three months into the apprenticeship program, okay. for a whole host of reasons. You know, it's a lot of different reasons. Uh, and we also have this, you know, although we have a certain amount of data because we don't ask any questions when we hire people, we also don't yeah. have a certain amount of data. Um, yeah. But thereafter. You know, because it's a hard job. I mean, it's 12-hour shifts, 65-pound bags of flour and sugar and, you know, all the other ingredients. Uh, so it's hard work. So for some people, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work out. Um, thereafter, once people get through that moment, our, our retention rates are way, way higher um, than the industry averages. And we've got folks that have been at the plant for, you know, 12, 15 years, which in, in our business is pretty unusual. Well, that, that's uh, very significant, and, uh, you know, it's, it's great to hear how this is working. Um, tell me, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, to do open hiring, companies need to provide uh, additional support services. So how, how much uh-huh. does it cost, you know, to do open, open hiring? Uh, you know, what kind of, well, I suppose it depends yeah. on the size yeah, yeah. of the company, yeah. but uh, well, can you, you talk one... in terms of a percentage? Yeah. I don't know. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So one key indicator is a great follow-on to, to, to the point. So, right, so retention obviously is important because you're not bringing in new people, you're not having to recruit people, you're not retraining people. So that's a, that's a, that's a big cost area for a lot of companies depending upon the nature of the business, right? The other key mm-hmm. thing that, that we know from our history 
is that our onboarding costs are about 50% less than the site of human resources management says is the norm for our, mm. our business. So that's a, it's about 4000 for the SHRM regular employment practices. Um, mm-hmm. We're at about half of that. Um, now, we also do know that, you know, our HR folks focus, and the way we phrase this, you know, it's, it's a good phrase, but it's totally accurate, which is that we don't spend money to screen people out. We invest to bring them in. All right, so there's about, I think it's about $4 billion annually spent in the U.S. just on background checks of all various types. Right? So we don't do that. We have none of those costs. Right, so we're not advertising. We have a waiting list of, I think, right about now it's about 400 people waiting for a job. So we don't have to advertise. We don't have to recruit. We don't have to screen. We don't check so a bunch of people sitting around looking at resumes. Yeah, so you're Sorry. saving money on the front. You're saving money on the front end. Um, right. the, one other piece on the on the I know where you're going on the back end, right? Yeah. The other thing that happens now this happens with other kinds of labor pools too we, we recognize that but the, but the sense of camaraderie collegiality and 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 group protectiveness is phenomenal right so mm-hmm. we don't a lot of potential problems never make it up to the supervisor or managerial level because because the folks on the floor are one incredibly protective of their own opportunity that they're you know they're they're on their journey they're on their path um, and they also, because of their own experiences, they get where people are coming from. So they're mm-hmm. out there willing to help. So there's kind of a, everybody at, at Grayson that works on the floor kind of has an HR hat on at oh. various points during the day because they're helping each other. They're mentoring each other. They're training each other. They're working as teams to make sure that the whole thing pulls together. That doesn't require as much management intervention as might be the case because these folks are like, this is a ticket to ride in the mainstream economy, making good money, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they don't, they don't want anybody messing it up for them. Wow. Wow. Well, that's, you know, that's real community culture. That's a real corporate culture that, uh, that you want to foster in almost any business where people are really helping one another succeed and ultimately helping the business succeed and helping customers have a good experience as well. Tell us, how can business owners and uh, hiring managers learn more about open, open hiring so they might be able to explore it themselves? And yep. Is this expanding? Is it going beyond Grayston Bakery? Yeah, so what we've, what we've been doing over the last year to two years, and we're in the you know, next year will really be the year that bears fruit, <clears throat> we've, we've realized that, we can double, triple, quadruple brownie production. We can expand into the EU and so forth. We can add cookies to the product line, et cetera. Um, but to, to, to drive the level of change at the scale we want it, to bring more people into the workforce, to, to meet our fundamental goal, which is the, and the mission, is thriving communities, right? Open hiring is right. a stepping stone to thriving communities. So we need to move from being only a place-based operation in Yonkers, which will always be our home, but to a practice-based effort. So we're setting up the center for open hiring at Grayston to teach the practice to other companies, to early adopters, to folks who are really ready to sort of see HR 
in a new way, not so much as sort of risk management, but as an innovation mm-hmm. hub. Um, so we've got we've got research projects that we're running with Yale and with you know the Stern School at NYU, and we're talking with the folks out of Case Western about joining that aspect. Um, but we, we're doing employee swaps. It's a collaborative learning space where we're going to share what we know and and learn from others too about if they're having a challenge with trying to do it or, or how they're doing innovative work in the HR space. So there's a, there's a bunch of different uh, aspects of the center, but it's all designed to make it possible for companies that don't have the um, the benefit, really, of, of having started with this as core to who they are, um, but to be able to adopt it, take it on, bring it inside, get the business value from it, um, and and create more of a purpose-driven culture in the process. So, you know, it's, we, we'd, we'd love to hear from folks that, that are interested in our in having help, We'd love to hear from folks who have tried some variety of this and are, are having challenges, um, but we think it's kind of the test, you know, going forward into the rest of the 21st century for real, authentic leadership and insight into into where the innovation and, and where the the challenge is going to be is going to be around talent management. So we're we're poised to help anybody who wants to have help. Wow. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan, this is a, this is just the beginning of the conversation, and at this point, uh, we're going to open the uh, phone lines up for everyone who's on the call to ask questions or to make comments as they might see fit. And uh, thanks so much for the good background that you've given us so far in the call. I'm sure that our listeners are going to have some uh, some good questions for you and for us as we uh, as we go further in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, make sure you, if you've muted your phone, unmute your phone first, and then just give us. Uh, this is Joe Ginter from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and, and I guess uh, kind of two questions. The first one is, you know, kind of, does this apply to all positions that you hire? Because you obviously have different functions there. Um, mm-hmm. And do you apply it to all functions? And then also, I'm curious about. Uh, the interactions with the union and how, if you've had any issues with the union related to these practices. So those are kind of two things I'm interested in. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, every position on the production line from, uh, you know, introductory baker to the forklift operators, the folks that work the warehouses, as well as the actual bakers, packers, all of that stuff, yes, that's 100% open hiring. Now, that is the production line, right? We have a chief engineer. We have a general manager of the bakery. Um, and we have, you know, social workers who run the, the Childhood Early Learning Center. Uh, those are not open hire positions. So not every uh, – across the enterprise, not everything is an open hiring position. We are so, – but sort of a quick aside, though, or not really aside, but um, – but there are folks, for example, who've come through the open hiring or through the workforce development who are in junior-level administrative positions. Um, and, and we're pretty conscious that like folks might well decide, this is great, I love having a job and the money and the purpose, but I don't really like baking. Um, so we do then have a, essentially through the workforce development work, essentially an outplacement um, kind of operation where we, we try to help them move on to another, another job. Um, we think that there are... Um, some easier, some harder fits for open hiring. There are certain kinds of sectors 
um, where you can train people pretty readily, others where it takes a lot more training. You know, we're, we're well aware that, you know, we're not training neuroscientists, right? We, we know that. Um, but we think it's it's got a lot of application in a lot of, whether it's a mailroom or it's a physical manual labor job. And there are all kinds of regulatory issues in different states and whatnot that, that have to be addressed as well. Um, and your second part of your question, uh, which I like. Uh, the union. If, oh. Any um, issues with the union? Yeah. Uh, there There are. I mean, the basic answer is the union loves us, so there are very few issues. Um, they love telling the story. They, they, so, um, you know, I'm not, I haven't actually sat in on any of the negotiations that are, you know, the periodic meetings that are inevitable. Um, so I'm sure there are some uh, challenges that, that arise around that in terms of who's allowed to do what and that kind of stuff. Um, right, but but I, I have not heard from the general manager, uh, nor from Mike, our CEO, who I you know I've been working what I don't know, going on five years with Mike on various strategy things and, and now more operational. I, I haven't heard anybody, the kind of things that often come up where managers like, oh man, the union is like, you know, they're really busting our chops about this, that, or the other thing. I'm not hearing it. And I guess I can just add that I, you know we are we are also dealing, you know, through over again because we're trying to work across the board from you know, U.S. Chamber of Commerce um, Association of Chamber of Commerce executives to the NAACP and the AFL-CIO. We, we work with all of them. Those aren't just, those are like real real work with all of them. The, the AFL, you know, is is very keen to sort of show our model, and we're, we're talking with them now about doing. Joint union management presentations around the country, um, you know, through various forums to show folks how this works. Joe, Joe, this is Glenn here. Are, are you still uh, working with GKN? Is that right? Yes. And do do you have? Uh, and I take it from your question, you're working with with uh, the unions quite a bit. Is that right? We, we yeah we have a particular facility in Rockford Illinois. It is a union facility that um, we're having a tremendous challenge um, finding uh, production level workers right now. Hmm. Um, hmm. And you know we're primarily looking for uh, I'd say skilled labor in that situation, but we're um, we're definitely we're really challenged right now because we've seen a tremendous increase in sales and we we cannot staff up uh, to meet demand right now and then uh, we're, we're looking at all different kinds of programs to try to bring people in and you know uh, referral awards just for existing employees and things uh -huh, like that uh -huh. but um, yeah no, I, I don't know your particular business or that particular, you know, what the what the employment situation is in Rockford and what the labor pool looks like there. But certainly we know that there are companies that, that, that come to us and come to open hiring because they are experiencing spot labor shortages. You know, and I don't mm -hmm. know what level of training, you know, is required to bring your folks up to speed, but there's, you know, there's a labor pool of roughly 700,000 people just in the folks that are returning from having done their time in prisons every year, so that's a that's a big labor pool to ignore. Again, I don't know how it how it plays out in in Rockford. Mm -hmm. 
but happy to happy well, to talk further offline if that's if that could be helpful. Jonathan, one thing that, that might be helpful would be, let's say that uh, that that Joe uh, really wants to pursue this line, or, or or that his company decides, hey, this could be interesting for us. How, how would they get started uh, mm-hmm. trying to do open hiring when yep. they haven't done it in the past? Yep. Yeah, so I mean there's a couple different ways that we are set up to do that so so companies are beginning to join the Center for Open Hiring which then gets a set of services and whatnot that come to the company. Um you know, we can also work and are working with companies one off via consulting, you know, fee for service contracts. We do employee swaps. Probably before an employee swap, we'd want to work with a prospective early adopter a little bit on an assessment, right? So what's the size? What's the scale? What are the demographics? Which line of work you're in? What's the culture? You know, we have a, a, a protocol for how to help a company think through what's it doing now and what would open hiring mean. Um, so, but there, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a host of ways we can we can help, and you know, we'd be pretty pretty candid with you if the situation is one where it's like, yeah, it doesn't look like we really got much to offer you. <laughs> we'll tell you that pretty quickly, too. Okay. Mark LeClaire here. I'm just wondering, um, when you started doing this, if, uh, I presume you were probably the first one in your, your city or region, possibly, to do this. Uh, what kind of you know, regulatory, legal, financial uh, barriers hit you when, when people uh, realized you were doing something, you know, very different from the norm? That's a good question. So, you know, we've been at it 35 years, um, not always in Yonkers. We moved to Yonkers about 16 years ago, I think, built a new plant and started hiring. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know the concrete history of whether there was anything specific um, that came at us. You know, we we get a uh, on the on the on the pot, on the upside, we get a two thousand dollar per employee tax credit. Um, two to it is actually it varies a little bit on the nature of the work, but we get that uh, because we're hiring people that are difficult to hire. Um, so there's a positive side there. Um, we didn't, everyone comes through open hiring. We did not have the experience that we know some folks that have tried this in various ways have of existing line workers going like, whoa, wait, well, I don't want to be working next to someone who, you know, this, that, or the other. So that was never an issue for us. You know, our folks, so it's union, insured, you know, we've got all of the standard uh, pieces in place. I don't know that we had any I, 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 I've never heard anybody in the, in the company talk about additional sort of regulatory hurdles, problems with our insurance companies, um, any of those kinds of things coming up for us. Now, again, we've been at it for a while, but I've only been involved for about four or five years. There might have been things that, that came up, but I'm not, not, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, thank you. Now, I guess hey, one, hey. sorry, there is one thing that, right, I know does vary state by state which which can be issues for folks is right there's you know there's there's the regulatory environment for the for the company and then there are also uh, legal regulatory issues where there are certain kinds of disclosure required but from people seeking jobs right so there's two sides to that 
uh, both of those have to both of those have to work. You know, New York State does not require disclosure, so if we don't ask, people don't have to share anything. That's not the same in every state. We know that. So there's there is a whole public policy over time piece to this. Um, where we and there's a lot of work already going on by lots of organizations. I mean, everybody's I'm sure familiar with the whole ban the box uh, aspect uh, of, of of hiring practices. But there's a lot more building beyond that in terms of you know trying to let companies have access to labor pools. Jonathan, this is Scott Myers. Uh, good hey, to Scott. be with you. I'm, good to be with you on the phone today. Glad you could do this. Um, this this the part of what you do that catches everyone's attention is of course the open hiring. And, and you lead with that. You say we have an open hiring practice. Yep. But as I as I understand it and hear you talk about it, uh, you know maybe uh, a more accurate description of what you do is a massively intensive training program that is so effective we're able to engage in. Oh, by the way, open hiring. <laughs> Interesting. Because uh, because somebody can't just start off as as you described today somebody can't just start off and say well we're going to start we're going to start practicing open hiring and, and figure it out as we go do you find that the people who uh, express an interest uh what is their experience or what are their responses when they realize how much they have to invest in uh training people and looking after them is that is that like sticker shock and you lose people, or do people get really excited and engaged by that part of it? That's a really interesting question, Scott. So, so a couple thoughts on that. So, right, so one of the things that we know is really different for us, um, and it's really important for the early adopters, is when you try and bring in, you know, one or two or have a slot designated as the open hiring slot, that's hard. Right, because it's like it's like someone you know running the gauntlet, like oh here's the open hiring person. Um, so what I what I referred to earlier in terms of the sort of the, having a cohort come on as a group, we have found that that's it, it. It takes some more effort, but you're also distributing that cost and that effort across a, a, you know more than one or two people, right? So there's so that that's an advantage financially. Um, we don't let me just think in terms of the concrete folks we're working with right so you're i'm with you 100% that it's not something that a, a, a leader of a company should sort of start down this path lightly it's a serious undertaking but it also brings a whole host of internal other positive benefits just more than just access to additional workers um so we have not found people um, having sticker shock. We have found companies, you know, we, we've gone through the experience with, with one company that we're working with in particular, where they had the sort of um, leadership wanted to do it, but there was a little bit of sort of organ rejection, if you will, right, if you take the medical metaphor, right? Like <laughs> people were like, well, wait, I, I, what, what, I, what about, like, I thought my brother was, I, I recommended him. Like, why is this open hiring person all of it? And he's like, well, if I'd anyway. Right, so there's some of that. So the socialization of it takes some time and some effort, um, but then the sense of purpose that comes, and, and we did work that through with this particular uh, company, and they're now happy as clams. They are thrilled. 
because they're they're gaining access to this new labor pool and they have they've worked their way through some of the internal challenges. So we don't see the we don't see the sticker shock. We do always, 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 always the the folks, um, typically the leaders of the HR departments, have a ton of questions. And then once those questions get addressed, the level of excitement that usually happens among the HR teams is like, well, wait, we got now we can do all this really cool stuff. We're not just screening people out. We can like there's a whole bunch of other stuff, and we need to learn, and then we can share and. So it becomes, I'll just add one thing. So we are currently working with, you know, companies, you know, at at the under $10 million level that are doing assessments for how to um, adopt open hiring and at the, you know, $60 billion, literally, level, multinationals, um, both of whom are assessing not so much if they've crossed the if question, the how. How can we do open hiring? Where should we do it? What time period, et cetera, et cetera? What are the KPIs? All of that jazz. So it's it's coming as a new form of of human capital management. Um, the the you know each place, each regulatory framework, each sector, each culture of companies. I have a question about um, the people that are signing up, uh, that are getting on the list to be hired. Uh-huh. Uh, are they signing up on specific lists for specific roles, uh, or just you know, do you just have a general pool of next available people, and then you assign them to the roles where you need them? Yeah, it's the latter. It's one list, need a job, and then when one comes up, we bring them in and start with a generalized training, and then it goes they go into that particular job that opened up. Okay, I guess then my follow-up is, I presume when new positions open up, especially higher-level positions, that you have maybe first uh, approach your existing workforce and look to hire from within, uh, promote from within. Yes. Yep. Yep. Right. So train when you know when a training or a managerial position. Or- Tell us about the kinds of backgrounds that uh, you discover as as your you know as people come on board. I mean, I, I, you, you did talk about reducing recidivism, which tells us you know you're hiring people who may have a criminal background and had a hard time getting a right. job. Tell us about uh, others who yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe have come into your midst and um, and uh, and they had uh, other reasons for not being able to get a job. Right, right. So um, a couple of concrete stories. So. Um, Shauna, who you know, I've gotten to know a little bit, was a woman who, she because because of health issues with her kids, divorce, single mom, etc., um, she had to get she had to work um, nights because her her oldest kid needed her there for medical reasons, um, and she didn't have any experience, and she was you know uh, you know really 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 struggling. Um, and she would you know she would get interviews, and she'd go in, and it would be no experience. And no, we don't. You can't just join the night shift. That's like, you know, no, that doesn't work. Um, and then she got the call, and we're like, yeah, you can work the night shift. It, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, and so we often will. You know, I'm sure lots of lots of folks face this, right? But you know, we we can adjust schedules to some extent as long as we can swap people around without it becoming very burdensome for the scheduling teams. Um, but so you know, that worked out. So that was for her. That was a. It was just a, a scheduling. Scheduling, economic, you know, social challenge, but really scheduling. The 
other the other folks that we get at times, um, I, and I and you know, again, I don't I hear this always after the fact because we don't know why they come to us before the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is folks that have been homeless and can't put down an address. Mm. So you know, most places aren't going to hire you if you don't have an address. Yeah. No, right. it's, it's completely right. different. No, we don't. We don't require that. You know, one of the things that's interesting, and I, I think folks may have experienced this when they're when when looking at sustainability issues, or looking at carbon and climate, or looking at other environmental things. Once you take mm-hmm. the open hiring um, practice and think of it as a lens that you can sort of point around the entire operation, you, you find other things. So, like we think we're pretty savvy when it comes to HR stuff. But it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing, right? So all of for the um, for the non-production line positions, you know, we have our standard job descriptions, and we have our standard boilerplate, and this and that and the other thing. And finally, somebody finally said, "Wait, why are we saying college degree or high school degree? Like, why are we saying that?" So we shined our own lens back on ourselves, and we're like, "Oh, wait a minute! Like, <laughs> we, what do we care if people can actually do the job?" We don't care what they, they could have a PhD or they could have no degree, right? Um, wow. So, so I think the part of and, and as we then worked our way through that little interesting kind of uh, moment, we realized that okay, that's actually just us being sloppy because we're just not defining the actual expectations for the position well enough. So if we can, if if, if we sharpen our pencils on that one, we can drop out the educational mm-hmm. requirement. But you have to be able to do specific things to succeed at this position, and we just need to define them better. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we've started pulling that language out of our other job descriptions. What other questions or comments do we have, folks? Uh, we got about ten minutes left in the call, and uh, maybe time for a couple more questions. But uh, who else has a question or comment? Hi, Jonathan. This is Scott Barr in San Antonio, and I'm very grateful for your time today. Thank you for yours. And I had uh, three questions, actually. Could you speak to the ownership structure you mentioned earlier? Uh-huh. And then also to the Wisdom Council? And then uh-huh. thirdly, are you guys connected in any way to Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Uh, okay, let me do the third one first, which is, I, I, although I recognize the name, I'm not sure why. Um, so I don't think there's much of a connection, but it, it does ring a bell. I'm not sure why. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the um, uh, ownership structure, yeah. So there, the the um, the the commercial B Corp Bakery is owned by the Grayston Foundation, which is not an operating, which is a, not a grant making, but an operating foundation. Uh, it also has around it, uh, and I'm not sure exactly the number, but I think it's at least four other nonprofit uh, entities: the Early Learning Center, the Workforce Development Program, um, et cetera. Um, so there's a, 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 an ecosystem <clears throat> um, around the, the bakery and the, the then nonprofits that surround it. It's a little bit. Um, Order quite a bit smaller, but it's it's a model that Beneficial State Bank. I'm not sure if folks are familiar with Beneficial out in California, but it's a B Corp bank. <clears throat> that, excuse me, that also has as its 
owner of that commercial operation, a nonprofit. Uh, and your third question, I'm sorry, was uh, yeah. The, speak to the Wisdom Council. So oh, got sure. An executive team, a board of directors, and a Wisdom Council. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, the Wisdom Council. Um, let's see. So the Wisdom Council was designed as a as a vehicle for for non governance and and not responsibility for financials and performance and, and KPIs and whatnot but as a way, as an advisory council, really, um, where we could just have resources available to us from a variety, across a variety of different areas of expertise. So it's really an advisory council. Um, our, our, the extent to which we lean on it to be perfectly transparent kind of ebbs and flows. Um, sometimes it's quite active. Um, I think, and it's back before my time, but maybe 10 years ago or so, you know, the, the path-making piece was more fully sort of developed and, and put into the organization. Um, and we've gone back and forth as to whether we have this, as we do now, external relationship with a, uh, a case manager provided by a local community service organization or whether we have that in-house. Um, but I think, so we lean on the Wisdom Council for sort of advice and recommendations without having the expectation as a board of directors would, you know, that they have actual responsibility. Uh, they're just advisors. What kind of people make up the Wisdom Council? It's a mix. It's it's real estate folks. Um, it's political people. It's some communications folks. It's social service agency people. It's business people. It's it's pretty intentionally uh, broad. Um, it's a it's a pretty good mix, and it, again, you people rotate on and rotate on and off, and there are some people that go from it to the board and from the board to it, but it's, mm -hmm. that's not there's no protocol for that. Okay, good. I don't think Bernie, our founder, Bernie used to be on the on the Wisdom Council, but I think he was. Uh, you know, Bernie's getting up there in years now. We all we saw him last week at the gala, but he's you know he's a little bit involved, but but not I think even formally on the council. It may be you know, complex structure. Right, right. Uh, other comments or questions? Glenn, I got, I got one more. This is Joe Ginter again. Yes, um, Joe. It, are there any, like, minimum requirements? Uh, I mean, obviously, you say, we have a job. If you want a job, okay, come on. Is there, I mean, is there, a, you know, some minimum requirements, like a, literacy or do you require a, a drug test I mean or is it just you want a job here's a job and and it's literally that simple um, or is there some minimum requirement that once yeah. once they come in day one that we kind of you know you do some some base level assessments I don't know uh, well so yeah two, two different two different but, but very linked questions the only other thing we ask is can you lift 65 pounds, um, and, and that's it. Now, I've often been asked, well, what if people say no? Do you turn them down? <laughs> um, I think the answer is we wouldn't, but it affects then this sort of the second layer question of, well, then certain kind of jobs aren't going to make sense for you because you can't do them. Um, mm -hmm. So we have, it would have to go in a different direction. Um, so the, uh, 
the, the early phases of the apprenticeship program definitely then begin the process. All right, well, what are you good at? What are you not good at? What is your level of competence? Can you read? What's your language capability? Yes. It's not like there's a formal battery of tests, but we, there is then a, with the training comes an assessment process and we score people um, in terms of punctuality, in terms of, you know, a whole bunch of different things across, across the spectrum. So we all, you know, and it, we try, even though we've got it embedded in our DNA, we try to bring people in in groups still, um, in part because it's, again, shared cost across more heads than not. Um, but it also then gives us the opportunity to sort of channel and, and put people into pathways that we think are more likely to, to work for them. Um, so there is then a process, yes, where we we are, you know, one of the things obviously that you know we look at is like, can you read instructions? That that kind of matters, right? Um, what's your language capability? What's your reading comprehension? Those kinds of things. So you know, we we have a lot of diagrams that we use for folks, um, and it's you know, on the one hand, you know, mixing you know, mixing oil, chocolate, flour, etc. is not all that complicated. On the other hand, not all that simple either when you're doing it at an industrial scale and you're doing, you know, 35,000 pounds a day and you've got packaging machines and shrink wrap and you've got freezers and you've got hot ovens. And, you know, all right. so, so we do look to, you know, people need to be able to do the job right. Um, so, yeah, we are, we are both training and assessing once they're – but, the, but the, the kicker is that it's once they're on board, our commitment is to then make it work. As does there need to be their commitment, but that's Jonathan, not part of a screening process. Right, right. And uh, you know, I, I hate to cut things off here, but Jonathan, give us your contact info so if anybody on the call wants to follow up with further questions, they can either yep. email you or call you. So um, why don't you give uh, give yep. us the contact info? Sure. It may not even be if you want them to contact someone within the company. That's another possibility. No, I mean I'm I'm happy to you know I'm a little hard to reach sometimes. So let me give you email first. Um, Alex, I knew I don't know if Alex is still on the call. She had to jump off, but so I'm I'm Jonathan H at Grayston, and then it can be either .org or .com. Doesn't matter. Um, and you can find us on the web at Grayston. Um, and I'll let me give you my, my phone, and if I'm not there, Alex uh, or uh, Robin will grab it. It's 914-376-3900, and I'd be happy to, you know, uh, happy to answer questions or, you know, talk, talk through other things with folks that are, that are of interest. Well, Jonathan, this has been a pleasure to have you on the call today, and to have all these callers too, I, you know, it's it's good to get these good questions, very practical questions, Jonathan, for you today. And uh, and you're doing something I think that, that really is benefiting Yonkers. And I'm not sure where your European bakery is going to be just yet. Uh, what, what country is that going to be in? It's going to it'll it'll be in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, all right. Yeah. And uh, so you know, it's uh, it's just to me, it's it's exciting to know about a uh, a process where people who didn't feel they had any opportunity now feel like they have an opportunity. And once they come in and feel loved, accepted, not judged, they mm-hmm. they begin to become a part of a protective community that helps others succeed. Yeah. I love that. I love that about what you're doing. And um, So, Jonathan, uh, we're just going to close our call today, as, as we always do, 
with with a word of prayer, and we'll pray for the good work that's going on at your bakery and the expansion of uh, of the open hiring concept as other companies take it up. So let's just take a moment, and uh, and we'll come before God. God, we thank you for this call today and for this opportunity to hear from our friend Jonathan Halperin and the good work that uh, he's doing uh, with Grayston Bakery uh, through open hiring and the good work that the folks at Grayston Bakery are doing. We, uh, we thank you, God, for the ways in which this whole process has developed and for the three rings of support for a new hire when they come in. We ask, God, that you would watch over these processes and that uh, you would give success to those who haven't had great success in employment before. And uh, we do pray for the spread of this kind of practice in other communities so that uh, uh, those who are looking for a job and have been shut out other ways might have a new opportunity and a new hope for a living wage and, uh, and economic uh, prosperity in their community that perhaps they didn't have before. We thank you, God, for this time and uh, for each person who's been on this call. We ask for your guidance and leadership in our lives as we seek to contribute good to each of our communities. Amen. It's great to be with you all today. And Jonathan uh, Halperin, thank you so much for what you've shared with us. We look forward to our next month's call with Pablo Guevara from Epic Pie talking about purposeful investing. Great to be with you. Have a great day.